Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Pasord, and I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by Peter Richardson. Peter has such uh, an eminent and um, uh, fantastic CV that I have to read out his biography. It's it's too long for me to be able to memorize it. So Peter Richardson serves as VP Pharmacology at Benevolent AI. He was a founding member of Cambridge Biotechnology Limited in 2001 and served as CSO and Executive Director until 2005. Peter pioneered the sale of CBT to Proximogen Limited, to whom he acted as an advisor until 2012. Between 1989 and 2006, he served as a lecturer and senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacology. University of Cambridge, we are pione- he pioneered research into drug discovery for Parkinson's disease and inflammation, as well as new gene expression technologies. He is the author of over 70 peer-reviewed scientific papers. Peter studied biochemistry at the University of Oxford and was awarded a doctorate in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you, Raj. Tell us a little bit about how your interest in biochemistry um, started, because you started off by doing a first degree in biochemistry. And that, from someone who did a medical degree, that was really the hardest subject we had to study in medicine. (laughs) So why on earth did you pick such a difficult subject? How did you get interested in that area? It was was basically from school because um, my two favorite subjects at school were biology and chemistry and I was always a bit of a nerd uh, and enjoyed learning so I thought well why not try and merge them and so that's what I did and went for biochemistry. And did you think about a possible career afterwards or you just you just studied those subjects because you you loved them? No, I, I studied them because I knew they'd get me out of bed in the morning in, at university because they'd be interesting enough. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's the biggest bit of advice for any student. <laughs> Study something that will get you up. <laughs> yes, but could you say a bit more about what you found so interesting about biochemistry? Well, I mean, fundamentally, it is it's the chemistry of life. It is how do molecules, well, put it another way, the easier way of looking at it is how do plants take the energy of the sun and make sugar? And how do we take sugar and make energy so that we can walk around? And that's what biochemistry is. It's the molecules involved in how plants live, and the molecules involved in how animals live, and how they interact. And there is a kind of very wonderful mystery about how this all works at a biochemical level that we all take a bit for granted, isn't there? Uh, I'm not quite sure what mystery you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's the complexity of all the different things just a, one cell does. Um, I have always found absolutely amazing. But I, I interviewed a physicist once who said that actually life doesn't make sense to a physicist in the sense that the fact that life reverses entropy, doesn't it? There's order within a cell. There's We, we as human beings and any living creature is hugely ordered. And to create that order requires information and some transaction with the environment across the membrane, etc., etc. And exactly how life does all of that still, as I understand it, um, although we're, we're, we're getting a deeper understanding of it, remains mysterious. Oh, yes. I mean, mean, you're talking about the origins of life now and why did it occur and how did it occur? And no, we we don't know. I mean, there was the great experiments in Miller way back in the 50s, I think, um, where he showed that a combination of, of, of the old atmosphere and lightning could generate the first few biological small molecules 
but really it makes no sense. So you moved from biochemistry into pharmacology. Tell us a bit about what you're doing now in terms of your career. Well, I've, I've got what I regard as the best job in the world, which is I have access through benevolent AI to the whole sum of human biomedical knowledge. And I have a sort of roving brief uh, in the company um, where I am free to use this knowledge to come up with novel ideas, to check what the rest of the company is doing, make sure it all makes sense, that it's logical, it's biochemically sensible, it's pharmacologically possible. It's, it's that that's my job, which is um, rather fun, actually. <laughs> So drugs are hugely important things in our lives. This isn't a single planet person living in Britain who hasn't taken a drug of some kind at one point or another, even if it's just anodine or aspirin or something like that. So tell us a bit about, because it still remains mysterious to most people, how drugs come about, how drugs are discovered. It's a hugely expensive process. Tell us a bit about that process and, and where you fit into that process. Well, nowadays, it's quite... It's Well, it's remarkably complicated, but, but simplistically what we do is we take a disease, and let's say COVID-19 for the sake of argument, right? And then we identify a biological mechanism which is causing the problem to patients with COVID-19. And I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware that what happens is this great inflammation that drives people to the ICU, um, so we have a mechanism which is gross inflammation. And then what we have to do in the pharmaceutical industry is say, right, what component of inflammation can we modify in order to stop it? And then if we identify that component, we then have to make a drug which routinely is a what we call a small molecule so that it can easily access most of the body. Um, can that drug manipulate that component which causes the gross inflammation? And if it can, then you've got the beginnings of a drug. Then you have to go through safety and modifying the drug until you get to something that's really safe, etc. So the process begins with thinking and understanding some physiological process in the body or in a disease. Now, um, to what extent, because in psychiatry, because we don't know what, you know, the cause of depression is and so on, all our drugs are purely serendipitous discovery. Someone takes an anti-tuberculosis drug in the 1950s and cheers up dramatically. And people think, aha, <laughs> here's the basis of a psychiatric drug. So it is the case, isn't it, that that... that a good place to start is actually an understanding of the fundamental biochemistry of the disorder. And if you haven't got that, you're in a little bit of trouble in terms of getting good drugs coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And and that serendipitous thing that happened with the anti-TB drug, it's still going on. Look at Viagra. Viagra was identified, was um, developed really for, for hypertension, for high blood pressure in the lungs. And... Um, it had another side effect, which is what has driven it since. Um, so that still goes on. That is still a, a part of it. And, and new use for old drugs is still a part of it. But 
in for all the new, if you like, the new diseases or the, the diseases that are as yet badly treated, which is all of the cancers and an awful lot of other stuff, um, we need to understand the mechanisms. Now, the trouble with that is identifying the mechanisms underlying the disease and making absolutely sure that you've got the right mechanism. Because if you take any diseased person, process, tissue, there'll be multiple things going on. Which one's the important one? And that's where it gets a little bit clever. <laughs> when you say a bit clever, what do you mean by that? That's the bit well, we have to be clever. <laughs> well, that's where, actually... Things like, I mean, we were going to talk about AI a bit, artificial intelligence, and that's where artificial intelligence can actually make quite a big difference. In, in the way that we use it at Benevolent AI, it, what it gives us is here are all the mechanisms operating that we can see, that the AI can see. Um, however, there is increased probability that it will work well using mechanism A rather than mechanism B. Now that, it's, it's, I mean, it's a very crude summary, but that's where it helps. I mean, if you think that there are 35 million biomedical papers currently catalogued in Washington, um, no human can get anywhere near understanding them but there are probably lots of gems in there that would help you. And the only way we can get through that is using a machine, a machine that can read all 35 million papers, integrate all the knowledge it gets from that, and then allow you, the human, to interact with it. So let's talk a bit about AI. Um, first of all, it's a term that's bandied around a lot, artificial intelligence. Now, the artificial bit, I think, is kind of self-explanatory because it's not intelligence that lies within a human being. It's in a machine or a computer. But the word intelligence, psychologists in particular, who, of course, pioneered the concept because it's about 100 years old, take issue with the use of the word because it's a word that attracts a lot of funding. <laughs> but, but is a machine really intelligent? So tell us a bit about what artificial intelligence is. Um, it's a term that's bandied around a lot, but do people really, you know, common people, lay people like me, really understand what it means? So what, what's your understanding of what artificial intelligence is? And particularly, I'm interested in the intelligent bit. What is it to be intelligent? I wish I knew. Um, we can't even define intelligence as we see it in humans. I mean, we like to think we're ever so clever. And then you get some of these COVIDs over in Japan dropping nuts in front of cars so that the cars will break them and enable them to eat it. Now, is that intelligence? I, I would say yes, without a doubt. And then if you think intelligence is learning, that's a component of it, without a doubt. Adaptation as a result of that learning. But all, all most animals that you observe do this. They learn from where the food is, where the food is, and they adapt their behavior accordingly. So if we could define intelligence properly for humans, then I could answer your question, right? But as it is, the way I look at it, and this is a very personal view, is 
if I've got a machine that can read the 35 million papers and integrate all the biomedical databases currently out there in the world and put it all together in a way that I can understand, I call that intelligent because it's just too difficult to do. <laughs> and you can claim, and, and I agree with it, that all this is is a reflection of the computing power inherent in a computer. That, yeah, and that's true. You couldn't do it without that enormous um, computing power. But it's more than that somehow. It's, I mean, take an example. I keep talking about these 35 million papers. We, we have 35 million papers. We have what we call the knowledge graph, which has a load of nodes and edges, which are all connected, and every node is a protein or a gene and every connection between all of the genes and all of the proteins are, are there in our knowledge graph. And it's constantly updated. I'm not sure if it's every month or every week at the moment, but constantly updated, and the machine knows where to put the updates. It doesn't just put them at the back as an appendix. These are integrated into the whole graph. Now, what does that mean? Is that intelligent? I would have thought so. So the machines, as I understand it, are starting to do slightly surprising things that the humans that program the machines didn't expect them to do. Is that right? Yes. I mean, there's always, there's always strange things that come out. Um, part of my roving brief is to ask really very obscure questions. Uh, and, you know, it's... Could a drug interacting with protein A uh, make disease X much better through manipulating mechanism Y, right? And I, I tend to ask these things in the, in the most obscure way possible. And, and the end result is it comes out with some amazing insights. In, in, in my terms, in benevolent, we're getting insights that I didn't expect and that certainly you don't get from a simple database approach. It is, it is too good for that. And then another part of the intelligence, and I don't know how to integrate this really, is we have this knowledge graph and then we have these algorithms which crawl all over it. That's the way I look at it, as, as like a spider crawling over, trying to understand what's going on. And um, those are those intelligent? I don't know. Or is it the combination? I don't know. I wish I did. But you're right. I think a lot of people use AI as a way of, of getting funding for their research. <laughs> Right, because because it, it's it's very sexy, but it but AI has been around for a long time. It's gone through waves, hasn't it, of of being the 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 thing, and then it disappears for a bit because in fact people get disappointed. It doesn't turn up with the promise, and then it comes back again. Isn't that right? There's kind of waves of interest in it, and it has yes. died. It has died a death on several occasions. Isn't that right? In the past, yes, yeah. The government's pulled the funding somewhere back in I don't know if it was the eighties or the seventies or sometime, um, and that. You know, I, I, I sort of understand that. On the other hand, what's happened since then, of course, is our computing abilities have got better and better and better, which means we can handle an awful lot more stuff. And 
if you like, a safe bet is to have enormous computing power and label it artificially intelligent, right? And then you'll get away with it because you've got this computing power that can do almost anything. I mean, just think of the DNA sequencing that we're doing these days. I mean, you know, in 20 years ago, the idea of sequence, well, the idea was there to sequence a human in an hour. It's sort of happening. <laughs> and there's a computer capable of taking the, um, the code. People are frightened of AI, though, aren't they? They're frightened of things they don't understand. You're very, very excited by it, and you see it as a key that could help human beings in terms of drug discovery. What are your thoughts about the fact that people are scared of it, and they tend to lump it in with other things like um, genetic manipulation of crops and so on, and they, they see science as a kind of like a monster uh, that could be out of control. The, the Large Hadron Collider, when it was switched on, people thought it would create a black hole and destroy the Earth. Etc. Etc. People are afraid of science, aren't they? They're afraid of things they don't understand. Well, yeah, there are an awful lot of people like that. And what I don't understand about those characters, and well, I suppose I never would, but is if you really don't understand what's going on, make an effort to find out what's real and what isn't real. It's a bit like this this vaccination issue, right? People not getting vaccinated against COVID. I mean, what do you? Just instead of assuming that what you read in some social media is true, check it, check it properly. And but then if you still end up in a situation where you think it's all a conspiracy, there's nothing I can do about it. You know? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know why people shouldn't be frightened of science. The history of it so far has been enormous progress for enormous numbers of people. So going back to what is intelligence, machines have to follow rules, though, don't they? I mean, although the, the machine is crawling over the 30-odd million papers, it's still following a rule, isn't it, that a program has told it? Look for this, look for that. Isn't that right? Isn't that a constraint? It doesn't create its own rules. Isn't that one of the things that we think is different between us and, and the machine? Yeah, I know. I've thought about this in the past, and I actually thought, well, Oh, now, this is for you, Raj, right? Now, this is for your question, right? We don't understand how the brain works. That's true. Our brains work. We haven't got a clue. We, yeah, we know some of the molecules, but that's about it. Um, so how do we know we're not following rules? Good, good point. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. I, I mean, um, and then are these... The, the thing that AI, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the term, even though we haven't defined it. Um, the thing that AI is very good is recognizing patterns, right? As you know, when it comes to x-rays and scans and all this sort of stuff, uh, that's really helped biomedicine um, or is in the process of really helping biomedicine. And actually, the same applies in, in our benevolent drug discovery type approach where the algorithms can look for a pattern in the knowledge graph and i mean sorry human again say that oh i've seen that somewhere before you know um and that that is definitely part of it um is that intelligence is that just following rules is it making up a new rule i don't know <laughs> 
I mean, these are all fair questions. Um, but unless we define intelligence and understand ourselves, we can't answer them. So while we're on that point, there's a famous concept in psychology and the psychology of intelligence called tacit knowledge, right? So tacit knowledge is about an idea that if you ask an expert orthopedic surgeon to write a textbook or have to perform operations, he can probably write a textbook, okay? But if you read the textbook and then try to replicate his operating procedure, you may not do as good a job as someone who sits at his feet as an apprentice and walks around with him because there's something he communicates which is called tacit knowledge that he can't actually even verbalize but you gather from osmosis this is why the old apprentice model that you hang out with the great wise man is an important idea that you you, you still will get something from hanging out with him you would never get from reading his textbook so what are your thoughts about that idea that actually even if we are forming even the, the great surgeon may be following a rule he's not aware of but you just get it through osmosis you can't necessarily verbalize the rule yeah, no, I can I can fully see that. And I think the equivalent in my world is the machine generates concepts, generates targets, generates this, that, and the other. But it's the interaction with the human, with a drug discoverer who actually understands biology, chemistry, etc. Um, which, because quite often the machine comes up with something and you think, no, that's a bit daft. You know, you just wouldn't do that. I'm sure it's got its logic behind it. But on the other hand, having said that, I was looking at something the other day and I said, look, that's completely stupid. And then went round to check because I thought, well, maybe I've missed something. And the machine was right and I was wrong, which is great. That's always the best. They used to have a competition in Benevolent, which was, when is the machine going to beat Peter? And it happened about two years ago. <laughs> now, that's really interesting that you are completely unthreatened by the machine being right and you being wrong. Most people are threatened because you said machines are very good at spotting patterns. A lot of our lives and the jobs that we do is incredibly patterned. And actually, a machine, and we know that, for example, machines are now better at making diagnoses from x-rays than doctors are in certain cases there's been lots of studies and the radiographers are worried that they're going to get replaced because actually the machine's better at it than they are and it's pattern recognition so if we follow that through one of the really interesting things and it happened when photography came along it redefined what art was before art was the ability to draw a, a chair that looked like a chair then a ph photography came along and there was no point drawing a chair that looked like a chair because the, the camera could do it have a lot better than you could so then artists were liberated to think about art in a completely different way um and is is there a sense in which ai will liberate us to think about lives and jobs in a completely different because it will take over because people are afraid that ai will replace us and, and, and what are your thoughts about that? Because you're at the cutting edge and you see AI in action and people are terrified. It's going to replace us all. Well, it's, it's nowhere near doing that in my world. Um, AI is a great help. It's an assistance. And it's actually, I mean, the, the, some of the best work we've done has been, it's the interaction between usually a techie guy, by which I mean a, a programmer of some sort, uh, a biologist or chemist, and the machine, all three working together, so that the, the tech guy can modify the question, 
because the biologist says, no, that's silly. Let's change the question. Can we change the question? Yes, of course. Change the question. Change. Put it in. Out comes the answer in a couple of seconds. Ah, that makes sense. And it is that interaction. Does, is that going to apply to everybody all over the world? I, I think it is going to be a bit like your photography and art uh, analogy. It's going to be liberating in some ways. And if you think of all the diseases that are still badly treated in the world, including 90% of the cancers, etc., We've got a long way to go to fix it, and we can't fix it using the old model without this approach, because no human is able to handle all the knowledge you need to handle in order to come out with the right answer. You have to have this great tool in your back pocket that helps you do it, and that's what I believe anyway. Okay, you're, you're hugely optimistic about the future of science and medicine in this area, but even when your AI identifies a really interesting molecule, isn't there a huge amount of politics and expense? I think it costs about a billion pounds to, to take a drug from discovery to market. Isn't there a lot of other obstacles in the way? And that's why people have become a bit pessimistic about drug discovery? Uh, yeah, there are obstacles in the way, and it's not, it's not a straightforward game by any means. Um, and it takes an awful long time. Now, the reason it takes the time, and there are two phases to, to really to drug, discovering a new drug for a disease. There's the phase that happens largely in a test tube, right, which routinely these days is about two years with a following wind, right? Then there is the clinical phase where you go through a very small number of volunteers at first, um, just to make sure the drug doesn't kill anybody. Uh, and in terms of cancer, the, these volunteers are always cancer patients. Um, and then a slightly larger number of people, so maybe 100, does the drug do what you think it does in a human? And an awful lot of failure at that point. And then and a bigger test in probably thousands, low numbers of thousands of people, where it's tested on a large group. And, and the real big sign there is what are the, what's the side effect profile like? Because one of the problems with drugs is they've, they've all got side effects of some sort. And because we're all different, we all react differently to different drugs. And result, our side effects are different. End result is not until you've been in to your drug has been in an awful lot of people that you actually get to the point where you can say, oh, yeah, now this works and it's safe. And that whole human based phase take five, seven, eight years. And that and then the regulators will take rather a long time to think about it because they always do. But that is their job. So the end result is you're talking 10, 12, 13 years to get a drug to market. And that, I mean, it is a real problem. On the other hand, we have to recognize that actually 
our treatment of very many diseases is an awful lot better than it was 50 years ago. So the system does work. It's just too slow and too expensive. Well, I want to pick you up on that point. It's so long and so expensive, only big companies can do it. And then big companies have to make commercial decisions. They'll back a drug for a very common disease, and they're thinking of the bottom line. And as a result, there may be many wonderful molecules lying on the sidelines that could have done good that have been dropped for economic reasons rather than scientific reasons. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, one of the things we're doing at the moment, there's another aspect to what you've just said, which is that the there are a lot of diseases that are just ignored by the big pharma because guess what there's no money in them um, the dengue virus is an example which is rife in africa india southeast asia and given the global warming we're all just experiencing um it's going to spread north right but it's it, it's been largely ignored and so the the way this is is working is there's a, a charity called I think Drugs for Neglected Diseases or something like that, which has got funding from various sources, uh, and we're trying to help them find new targets for dengue, and and this sort of thing is going to keep happening, and a lot of drugs are going to be wasted. On the other hand. The great advantage of this sort of AI system is as long as they've been published, right, we can retrieve them. So they could be used. <clears throat> the trouble is you get no patent protection for them, so you couldn't charge more than 10p for a tablet. But that might be a good idea. I mean, do you know about our COVID story? No, tell us about it. Back in early 2020, in January, when we all knew COVID was coming, we used our, our knowledge graph to find a drug which would um, do two things. One was inhibit the great inflammation that was killing people in the hospitals in China and Italy at the time. And um, also to inhibit infection by the virus. And using our system, which is quite remarkable, it took two days, um, we ended up with a candidate drug. And we restricted it to drugs that have been approved by the regulators for um, giving for any disease to humans. And it, it happened that this drug was it's called baricitinib. It was approved for um, rheumatoid arthritis. Right, So it's a safe drug. It's been in thousands of people. <clears throat> so we said uh, and published this, use baricitinib, use baricitinib, it'll help. Uh, and slowly the world, well, actually quite fast, the world, the NIH approved it, sorry, the Americans approved it in um, November 2020. India, Japan, and I think Russia approved it in early 2021. Um, and we've got round to approving it in the UK last month or the month before, actually May. That quite why we took so long is not clear. But that was 
using the ability of the AI to dig deep into the drug world and find something that might work. Uh, and it's now the WHO recommended drug for COVID, which is very pleasing. If only we'd approved it quicker. <laughs> so you were at the start of that story. You were the person that found it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I was part of those. Myself, there was a friend of mine called Dan and another one called Ollie. And uh, between us, uh, they're, they're two what I call techie guys. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and, and, and it took you two days to find it using AI? Yeah. From the start of you deciding to hunt for this thing? Yes. Wow. Because our, our CEO rang us up from, um, I don't know where she was. Oh, Dubai, I think, at the time. She rang up and she said, look, look, we're getting very worried about this COVID. It was called SARS-CoV-2 at the time. Can you see if the machine can help us? So that was on or around the 25th of January. Um, and we had the answer by the 28th, 29th. Uh, we told, um, we published it in the Lancet on February the 2nd. Uh, we warned the owners, because we don't own this drug. This, this drug belongs to Eli Lilly in America. Uh, we told them, and um, they were quite pleased, actually. <laughs> oh, well, of course they were. They were going to make lots of money. <laughs> they probably did make quite a lot of money. But, but it, you didn't. No, no, none at all, because <laughs> we said right at the beginning of it, look, we're just going to find what we think is the best. Yeah. Wow. So it was a pure and complete act of altruism to try and save the world. Yes, and, you and ourselves for... at the same time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but you were looking for a drug and you didn't really care who made it and who you were going to make lots of money for. Um, so um, what I also find fascinating is Eli Lilly didn't find the drug. So you did something that even the big pharmaceutical company worth billions of pounds was unable to do. You and yourself and two other, you and two other guys. Yeah, that's so, right. What's the I mean, secret of your success? How can you do it and these other people couldn't? And it's in their interest to do it. That's all that, what's so fascinating. Yeah, why didn't they do it? Yeah. Um, but that is a question. Baricitinib is one of a class of drugs. There are three or four others that are approved that are similar. Why didn't they do it? And why didn't the other companies who own the other ones do it? Well, they did get round to it in the end, but only after we started the ball rolling and the difference is in order to find a drug that inhibited the infection of the virus and inhibited the inflammation we had to dig very deep into a lot of very obscure places in the knowledge graph where you know we had um, databases incorporated and it's still, no, it was simple. They, I'll give you the answer, Raj. They couldn't do it because they didn't have a knowledge graph. The only way they could have done it is if they had read at least three of the 35 million papers which point to this drug. Because I did it afterwards the old-fashioned way in order to sort of try and make sure not only that it was going to work but actually to see how much does ai really help and yeah it just happened in two days 
two days to that was Thursday and Friday, then uh, wrote it on Monday and Tuesday. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the rest is, as they say, history. And I heard from Western Australia um, just last month that it is now their standard treatment for people with bad COVID because they've just opened their borders again. And um, so we got it right as well. That's the other great thing. <laughs> well, I wonder whether one of the reasons why you were doing it and the other drug companies aren't is partly because of the constraint on their thinking. The constraint on their thinking is they're a bit biased towards their own products, where you were completely open-minded. You didn't care where the science took you. And they're a little bit constrained in their thinking as a result. So there's something about blue sky science which gets missed out in the in the commercial world. What are your thoughts? That, that's exactly right. And, and one of the other problems that comes is the academic world are having to focus more and more finely. Each individual academic has to focus more and more finely just because there's so much out there, right? So what we would... What would be really nice, but I can't see them doing it, is every university should have a knowledge graph. If they had a knowledge graph, it would help them do the blue sky stuff. But tell us a bit more what you mean mean by a knowledge graph. Explain that a little bit further. Well, what it is, is it's the integration of all the biomedical knowledge, which is revealed to me on a computer screen in a graphic I can understand. So the graphic that I tend to use the most is is one where you have clusters of genes or proteins that interact with each other and they're different colors to another cluster that interacts between itself. And each of those clusters actually reflect biological mechanisms which underpin the question I asked, assuming it was a disease, it was underpin the disease. So I can say from that knowledge graph that this mechanism A and mechanism B are both strongly supported by all the knowledge we have in the 35 million papers. Mechanism C is not so well supported, but could be involved. Go and have a look at it, is in effect what it says. And then it's also, the knowledge graph is also a, I can't help but visualize it as a a three-dimensional nodes and edges thing with um, algorithms that crawl all over it, querying it. So I ask a question. I don't ask a question of the graph. I ask a question of the algorithm. And the question is, is in English. And it's really simple. You know, would manipulation of this this protein cure this disease? Do, do you think the process is helped by the fact you're an independent person, you found a drug, happened to be made by Eli Lilly, so there's a sense in which you are completely unbiased. If it happened to be made by whoever, all you're interested in is in the science. If Eli Lilly had come up with it, the regulatory authorities would be slightly more suspicious about their commercial interest. Do you think that's an element of what's going on in terms of not just the discovery bit, it's the regulatory bit, the approval bit? No, I don't think that would have happened. If Lilly had found it, say somebody in Lilly had actually seen those three papers and 
went to their boss and said, look, this could work. Lily probably would do what they did when we told them about it, which was check it out in some experiments and then go to the NIH and say, we've got to do a clinical trial. We've got to do a clinical trial. Get it in. And NIH responded positively to them, which was good. So I think even if they'd found it inside, I think it would have got through. I don't think commercial things would have stopped it. Okay. But the other thing that was fascinating to people like me on the outside is how far science moved with COVID. Things happen much faster than they normally do. Any thoughts about that? Because people became a bit suspicious about that. They thought the speed meant it can't be as good. And that, unfortunately, is partly true. <laughs> um, right. there, there are, there's, it's been great. Lots of data has come out. And because none of the publishing houses had put a restriction on any COVID-related papers, it meant that we all got access to it immediately. So that was great. Um, there was also a big push that anybody who said, I want to do a COVID-19 study, just got the money straight away. You know, And there are some that's not so good, and there's some that's just plain repetitive, but that's bound to happen. Has it slowed down again? Yes, of course. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's humans, isn't it? It's, you know, you, war or something is the mother of invention or, or a pandemic is, you know. So I'm going to ask you a very naive question biologically, so please don't run screaming from the room. But there's a sense in which there's an arms race between us and the virus or viruses. We use our intelligence. We use information to battle the virus. The virus is using information in another way. It's got DNA or RNA. And it's, it's, it's subject to evolutionary pressure, but it's reshaping, it's mutating. And evolutionary pressure means it's selecting itself to defeat our defense. There's an arms race between us and the virus. But given there's billions of viruses in any one square centimeter of water, etc., etc., um, you're confident we will always defeat the virus in this arms race over information. They've got information, they're just using it in a different way to us. Does that, am I, is that a very naive question or a dumb question? No, it's not, it's not naive at all. It's, it's a fundamental one. Um, the virus is just, is, is innately random in what it does with its genetic material, this virus, um, which is why we've got so many variants so quickly. Um, and that's fine as long as we go down the road the optimists are always talking about, which is that what will happen in the end is it'll become like flu, it won't hurt anybody, uh, and we'll just get it once a year and blah, blah. Now, that's not going to be true because it's raging at the moment in the height of a very hot summer. So uh, it's not going to be just like flu. In terms of can we um, protect ourselves well enough, yeah, I think the, the whole mRNA virus technology, BioNTech, Moderna, um, has transformed our ability to generate vaccines. So we've got a reasonable chance as long as whatever nasty virus appears next 
um, is amenable to that approach. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I just hope it, it doesn't become um, a nasty one. But it you know? could do, right? Oh it could yeah, do. it could easily. I mean, it's got, it's gone to, it's ramped up its infectious, infectiousness. Is that a word? I don't know. Infectivity, um, enormously. Uh, from early 2020 to now, all it needs to do really to cause real chaos is to go back down into the lungs because at the moment it's hanging around the nose and throat um, and are admittedly not brilliant, well, not brilliant, are admittedly okay immune systems are coping with it there. But if, if a new variant comes which, which decides it's going to lodge elsewhere, we might be in more trouble. Okay, so you've told us the fantastic story of you and, and this drug discovery which helped with COVID. Are there any other examples you could point us to where AI has made a big difference in terms of drug discovery, where there's a, a practical drug on the market now that, that has been um, arisen through AI or any other examples? I'm afraid it's too soon, really, <clears throat> because um, AI-assisted drug discovery is really so new that it, there's not been time to get on the market. But another example of a, um, of, if you like, reworking the use of an old drug for a disease was one way, again, using the knowledge graph, uh, actually quite an old version of the knowledge graph in this case, um, we came across, and this was pure serendipity, we came across um, a disease called DIPG, which you may know of. It's a, um, a, a rare childhood brain cancer, horrible, horrible, horrible disease. And um, we managed to, using the knowledge graph and some of the old algorithms we use to query it come up with a combination of two drugs which are generic, in other words, cheap as chips, which are safe when given uh, to humans, which could work. Um, it's a very rare disease. I think there's 600 in the UK at the moment of which this combination will work in a quarter of them. So we gave it to the Institute of Cancer Research and said, do you, do you want to progress this, try it out? And so they're doing that as far as I'm aware. Um, so there are, there are going to be multiple ones, just coming from benevolent, let alone some of the other AI-enriched pharmaceutical companies there are going to be many but not yet so i want to go back to the example of how you discovered this amazing drug and you did it in two days and you used ai <laughs> um to trawl 31 million papers um einstein um famously said and i'm going to paraphrase because i'm probably going to get the quote wrong imagination is more important than knowledge 
Now, what he was trying to get at, I think, was that at the cutting edge of scientists, great scientists like Einstein, of which, you know, one comes along every hundred years or so and revolutionize the way we think about something and make massive leap, leaps forward, are different to the average scientist. And at the risk of being rude to the average scientist, the average scientist is doing more mundane work. They're gathering data. It's, it's maybe useful, but they're not really thinking or developing or making revolutionary breakthroughs. The notion of a revolution in science comes along once a generation from a great thinker like Einstein. But there's the coalface people doing valuable work, but they're not going to change the way we, you know, our lives are. So Einstein comes up with things like time slows down in strong gravitational fields. Mind-blowing still to this day to think about this notion that we have of time, that actually time itself um, can can be affected. It, it, so, my my question to you is: um, Is there a sense in which AI, one of the dangers, it, it'll make us lazy, because we will generate findings by sticking the thing in the machine, and we'll stop thinking more fundamentally in the way Einstein had to. And of course, famously, Einstein working as the patent office clerk with very little, re no research support, just had to use his imagination. And there's another famous line from Rutherford, which is: "We have no money, so we shall have to think." Um, so, so what are your thoughts there's, there's, there's even a danger in AI it'll make us lazy intellectually well, am, am I again am I saying something crazy or stupid no I don't think so because well I, I can only talk from my experience of the benevolent AI right what it doesn't do is stop you considering the the concepts that i mean you know the time and the gravity and, and all of the rest what it does is give you the answers extremely quickly once you come up with a an idea sometimes it comes up with the idea sometimes you come up with the idea but that's the whole point and what it does is it allows you to check that idea quickly you know is this sensible or is this mad right now, obviously, in Einstein's time, if it had the AI, it would have said it was mad <laughs> because nobody had thought like that before. And then you're, you're only in the um, a position then, and this is really difficult, you've got to be in a position where you can tell the machine and your colleagues that actually you were right and the machine is wrong, Right. And yes, so you're probably right. We probably will become lazy because it's easier just to do what the machine says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're probably right, which is a very disappointing way, Raj, honestly. Sorry, sorry. Well, I've just seen it happen over and over again. It's only in psychiatry when MRI brain scanning came along. And I'm afraid I did one of the very first MRI brain scanning studies comparing people with schizophrenia with bipolar with normal controls. And the, when the machine came along and we had these incredible images of the brain that we never had before, of course, everyone shoved everyone through the machine. <laughs> and that, that happens in science. A new technology comes along. It's very sexy. Everyone stops thinking and just shoves people through the machine and not thinking hard enough. What does this actually mean? What does the result really tell us? So always technology, because of this, this publish or perish thing where people are driven to publish, it tends to make a new technology which is fruitful tends to generate a bit of laziness. But again, I wondered about your opinion on that. People are still being shoved through MRI machines, by the way. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> um, I, 
I, I think you're right. I think it could get lazy. But I think what will happen is the people like Einstein and Dirac and all those guys who just changed everything, is they would still be thinking whatever. And as you described them, the guys at the coalface who are, who are backing up all the advances and making sure they are correct and etc. Um, will do what the machine says. But Einstein will be at the back saying, oh, no, we've got to do something different. So I'm running out of time a little bit, and thank you for a wonderful interview. I want to go back to the Viagra story, and you know more about this than I do, but my understanding, and it may be an apocryphal story, is, as you say, your, 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 your part of the story is completely true. The drug was meant to be to do with a cardiovascular condition. They did a trial, and then, as I understand it, the reason why the serendipitous discovery occurred was at the end of the trial, what they normally do is they ask the patients for the drug back, all the drugs they got left over, and they, just, they, they saw, saw a very odd thing. The people who had the Viagra didn't give it back. <laughs> <laughs> there were no drugs coming back. And they thought, hang on, what's going on here? Why are they not giving this drug, which is meant to be for cardiovascular, back? And when they questioned people, what was happening was they were hanging on to the drug, any drugs they had left over, because of this sexual side effect, which meant they were having an amazing time in the bedroom. So my point there being, what's really fascinating is I don't know whether AI would have spotted that. I think it takes a human being, a human researcher to say, hang on a second, what's going on here? Why People normally give the drugs back because they have no use for them. Why are they not giving the drug back? What's going on? So there's something about that bit, because science is about the measurable, and there's something about human behavior. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if you see what I mean, the AI would have spotted that. No, that no. I mean, the AI would have spotted it if, I'm going to get jargonish now, PDE5, if we knew it was expressed in a, um, a sexual position, as it were, in the body. Right. Yes. Yeah. If the chemistry made sense from se a sexual standpoint. Yeah. I mean, so if we'd known that back then, then the AI would have flagged it. Um, not as a side effect or anything as sophisticated as that. It's just that this drug, it acts on this thing called PDE5. It should help the, the blood vessels around the heart and the lungs. And it's also going to help the blood vessels down below. Um, and that would have come up, but I don't think we even knew PDE5 was down there, actually, at the time. I mean, I hadn't heard your story. I love it. I think that's great. <laughs> it might not be true, but that's what I heard. But I think it's a cracking story. And it, 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 tell, it tells us something about how you should be alive to everything, even the smallest detail. Yes. There may be something in there, and that's, again, very important. Yeah, there was a woman who ran the clinical trial um, for Pfizer, who, who was um, recognized as really uh, taking notice. Uh, I hope she got suitably rewarded, but I don't know. <laughs> Probably <That's> did, actually. <laughs> Probably <laughs> did. Yeah, okay. So for you, what's the next thing that you're looking for? What's your next big project? Well, like I said, I'm doing a bit of dengue at the moment. I'm really focused on that at the moment. And you think that could come to the West? You think it will come to the West? Oh, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, the good thing about dengue is it, it really doesn't kill many people mm -hmm. compared to the number who get infected. <clears throat> so percentage-wise, it's quite good. Unfortunately, though, it kills a lot of children. And, yeah, I mean, it's going to come north. I don't know how far north. And then... 
you know, we had Zika the other year. Um, these things are going to keep happening. So you think we're, we're missing the fact that tropical diseases are going to come our way because we're going to turn into the tropics? Yeah. Well, they're going to get to Spain because southern Spain is going to be the equivalent of the Sahara. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, no, I, I don't know how many will get here, but they will. I mean, I'm sure the mosquitoes will come. I mean, that's all we need. Uh, in fact, they used to be here, of course, in the old days. I mean, Ephesus in Turkey um, was abandoned because of the mosquitoes back in, I don't know, around the year north sometime. Um, yes, it's gonna, they're, they're going to come. Uh, and the question is, how do we deal with them? Okay, so I'm going to ask you a very unfair question now. Maybe our final question, because we're running out of time. So AI is is going to be better, as we've discussed, with a bit of human assistance at making or spotting things in very big data sets. Now, one of the buzz things that's happening in the in the in the world of tech is is dating apps, and dating apps have millions of people on them, right? And there is a sense in which I wonder whether AI might do a lot of a much better job at spotting who's right for you in the millions <laughs> of people out there than than you can yourself. Um, do you think? There's a chance, I know I'm asking you a slightly left-field question, that AI will start to get deployed in areas like that, and we will actually bow to AI as a superior way of making some key life choices uh, and key life decisions. Do, do you think that's possible in the future? Uh, I, I really don't know. I think it's possible. Um, I wonder what criteria... Because you said AI spots, spots things that we couldn't spot. If there's yeah. a million people on a dating app, I spend all my time swiping right, swiping left, right? Then it's a very laborious process. If the AI has a sense, because it understands the, my previous girlfriends who I've got on who I haven't, and understands the pattern, it's got a much better chance of seeing the pattern out there. And it may be some, some you know, person living in a very obscure part of the world actually suits me a lot better than I would ever have realised. AI can do that, can't Yes, it, it can. And the, the training set would be quite interesting, though. I mean, <laughs> you know... Yeah, a bunch of girlfriends complaining about me. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And what do they complain about? You know, <laughs> you know you're going to have to get all of these details off them. And if yeah, you're on okay. the dating app, they're not probably that likely to tell you. Yeah, so that's a deep point. The quality of the data determines yes. what AI can do. If it has good quality data, it can help. But if it if rubbish in, rubbish out. Exactly. We've still got that problem, but uh, we have ways of getting around it. So uh, that's all right. So Peter Richardson, thank you very much indeed for a fantastic interview. Um, you work for a company called Benevolent AI. People can find out more about them on the web. And uh, congratulations on that amazing contribution you made uh, to the fight against COVID. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Raj. It's been nice. It's been good to meet you.